everyone. Welcome to the Natasha Crane Podcast. Today I have the honor of talking with someone who I think is one of the best, if not the best Christian models of navigating this tough culture with grace and truth. Dr. Sean McDowell is such a gifted communicator with a passion for equipping the church and especially young people to make the case for the Christian faith. We're going to go deep today into the question of how we can better balance grace and truth in our interactions with a hostile culture and also in our interactions with fellow believers. Just a quick reminder first that Elisa Childers, Frank Turk, and I will be doing our next Unshaken conference on May 6th at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills in Southern California, and the tickets are on sale now. If you're anywhere in the area, you're not going to want to miss this. It will equip you, it will encourage you to stand firm in your faith in this challenging time. So go to unshakenconference.com to learn more and get your tickets. You can see the schedule and everything else that we're doing. And looking ahead, we're going to be in Tucson on September 23rd and Nashville on May 4th. Those tickets will be on sale next month. Well, a little more background about Sean before we jump in. He has a PhD in apologetics and worldview studies from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's currently an associate professor in the Christian apologetics program at Talbot School of Theology at Biola, and he still teaches one high school Bible class, which helps give him exceptional insight into the prevailing culture. Sean is the author, co-author, or editor of over 20 books, including Evidence That Demands a Verdict with his dad, Josh McDowell. He has an exceptional YouTube channel which we're going to be talking about at length today. Well, Sean, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Natasha. When I sat down to figure out what to focus on for this interview, I actually had a really hard time doing that because there are so many subjects we could talk about, so much I'd love to discuss with you. But at the end of the day, I just kept coming back to the fact that I've always thought of you as a really fantastic example of someone balancing grace and truth in all of the content that you produce, whether it's your speaking, your writing, podcasting, or your video making. So that's why I wanted to just focus in on this particular subject with you. So let's start by defining terms a little bit. We hear, you know, grace and truth. It's almost like Christian ease a little bit. But what does it mean to be gracious in our engagement with others? And specifically, maybe touch on how does that differ from just being what maybe people think of as nice? So the president of Biola where I teach wrote a great book and it's called Love Kindness. And he makes a distinction between niceness and kindness. Niceness can be on the surface. Niceness can be a strategy. Sometimes when we think of niceness, you can kind of smile and be nice and at the same time stab somebody in the back. And we see it happen all the time in the world and on social media. Not everybody nice does that, but That's a sense of what we have when we think about niceness. Kindness or graciousness, I think, begins by really caring about people, by being charitable towards understanding people first, giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I know it sounds cliche, but just treating people the way we would want them to treat us. My dad has said to me many times, he goes, son, I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I'd rather get burned doing that by being kind with somebody than erring on the side of being harsh and unkind. And none of us can say we've perfectly done that, myself included, but that's what I what I try to do. And really more than strategy, I think graciousness comes from just saying, do I really care about this person? Am I thinking about how my words are actually going to land versus how they just make me feel. 
So when we start to think in that fashion and see the other person we're engaging as a human being who also has concerns and anxieties and weaknesses and all the same issues we have, I've just found that it, it helps me <laughs> be more gracious. That's a great comparison. I love that. I think, too, that sometimes when people think about being nice, they're just thinking about how it will be perceived by someone else. And so we, if we want to just be perceived as agreeable, that we just agree mm. with them, sometimes people think, well, that's nice. And that's not necessarily it. I love that distinction of saying, well, if you genuinely care for someone, how are you then going to act? So that's, that's great. You know, I know from talking with you and from just following your YouTube channel that you have made a conscious effort to produce content content where you model conversations with non-believers to demonstrate how Christians can engage with a balance of grace and truth. What was it that you were seeing online or in person that made you go, you know what, this has to be a priority for me. We need more Christian apologists who are just demonstrating these kinds of conversations. You know, some of it is partly the way I'm wired. My dad is a fighter and a debater. I mean, he'll say things like, I'm ready to attack hell with a squirt gun. And my mom <laughs> is the opposite. She hates confrontation, but she'll sit down and have coffee with you for two hours, look you in the eyes and cry with you. And my parents have always said to me, they're like, you are just 50-50, both mom and dad. I love a debate. I love engaging, but just have the sense where I want to talk with people and get to know people. And so a lot of my approach, I think maybe is just partly the way God has wired me. But I also look at our culture and I just see, we hear terms cancel culture. We hear people assuming the worst. We see people just having rancor and division. And not only that comes from a brokenness, but we also have this culture that if you can just shock and awe and do something like, wow, I owned that person. No one says this before. People retweet it and you'll get a huge following. And to me, I understand the temptation of that. Like, I get it. There's times where I'm thinking this could be provocative and I could get more views. But I always pause and I say, what's the end game? What am I trying to accomplish? And given that I'm a Christian, I think we lose far more than we gain if we take that approach. So I guess to answer your question, it's partly just the way I'm wired. Uh, it's partly just looking at our broken, divisive, angry culture and then third, I think, Natasha, a lot of the way I do apologetics is just come out of relationships that I have with people. So you'll hear me quote my dad a lot. He just influenced me a ton, but he told me years ago, he goes, son, don't practice what you preach. Preach what you practice. Mm -hmm. I thought that's really interesting. I don't want to be an apologist who just reads books and who just responds to people from afar. I actually want to get to know people who see the world differently and hear their stories and call them friends. And I think when you do that, it's going to change the way you actually engage people. And I appreciate that so much about your channel. And I'll have links to everywhere where people can find you in the show notes to this. But I love that you never, ever come across your videos and think, oh, wow, he just did that for shock and awe. So really, I mean, it's very clear. And I think that that is just a, um, that's a flowing out of your graciousness. Because if you are being gracious in your interactions and you're genuinely talking with someone because you care about them, you'll be thinking about that and not about the shock and awe and how many points am I going to get for this conversation. So I think it's very apparent that you have this gracious approach to talking with people through all of your videos. 
videos. You know, it's, it's interesting that some of your interviews are geared towards simply asking questions to gain understanding of the other person's viewpoint, not necessarily to share truth at that time. I remember, for example, in your interview with a progressive Christian pastor named Brandon Robertson, that you actually stopped yourself a couple of times from countering what he was saying. And he said something like, you know, as an apologist, I'm dying to maybe dive into this a little bit more, um, but I'm not going to right now because that wasn't the purpose of that conversation. And I know you got some pushback on that from various comments and things that I saw online. So maybe just explain why do you think a conversation like that one is just as important for Christians to see as one in which you're sort of in your full apologist mode of making a case for and defending the truth of Christianity? Well, every conversation I go into, I have a goal that I want to accomplish. And sometimes people watching it think I should have a different goal than what I actually have. And maybe they're right at the end of the day. I don't know. I certainly have gone back and reconsidered conversations. But take that conversation with Brandon. What's the goal? The goal is to show charity. I mean, he and many people who have left at least a conservative Christian faith will regularly talk about hurt and pain and bad experience that they've had. And so I want to reach out to people there and just show kindness and in some ways flip the narrative that it's conservatives who are bigoted and close-minded and intolerant and actually say it's conservatives who listen and we want to hear where you're coming from. And if we're wrong, correct us. And so that's a piece of it. So I want to show charity to people, but I also just aim for clarity in that discussion. I've thought about inviting Brandon back and there's a lot of things we could debate. I've thought about inviting him back to have a debate about abortion that would not be a conversation where I just have him on and say, tell me what you think, help me understand. If we had that conversation, I'd push back pretty firmly because of what's at stake. There's other debates that we could have, but the goal of that conversation was charity and simply clarity on who he views Jesus is, how he thinks we should engage culture and the scriptures. And to me, there's such power in just bringing out clarity. And we did in that interview. I mean, we, he basically said, I reject the historic view of the atonement. I reject the historic view of the Trinity. I reject these, the, in fact, the sinlessness of Jesus. He flat out owned that and rejected that. So I get that some people are like, they want me to push back. But for the nature of that conversation and opening up a hopefully a longer term relationship with somebody like Brandon, um, I, I've got to lay out what the goal is and stick with it. Now, the other piece that people don't see is when I invite somebody on my show, I want to be very clear with them about what this conversation is going to be about. I don't want anybody to feel like there's been a bait and a switch where they come on my show and then all of a sudden Sean starts debating these issues. Well, that person's probably not going to come back. And by the way, when I emailed Brandon and said, hey, would you come on? He reached out to a former another progressive Christian pastor who I had on my show a year ago. And it didn't cross my mind, but he goes, hey, I went on Sean's show. What do you think? And he said, you know what? It was really fair. I think you should do it. So again, it's a small world. I don't want any guests to think it was a bait and a switch. And the goal of that conversation was charity and clarity. Now, I did the same thing with uh, Colby Martin. And then we followed up and had, a, I would say, a more substantive give and forth like a soft kind of debate on the Bible and LGBTQ. 
I think there's a good chance Brandon will come back and debate some of these issues with me. So I understand why some people want to push it back and get it. But the other thing, too, is I also there's a lot of people. It, it's amazing. I'm sure this is true for you, Natasha. I get emails from people in the LGBTQ community, um, Marxists, New Agers who watch my stuff. It blows me away. And a lot of it, at least what they'll tell me, is because how they feel like I treat my guests. So if they'll come on and watch a thing like with Brandon Robertson, where we're talking about progressive Christianity, maybe some progressive Christians will watch that and be like, you know what, that's interesting. I'm going to watch some of Sean's other stuff where I'm laying out the evidence for God. I'm laying out the evidence for the scripture. I'm laying out the proof for the resurrection. So it's part of a larger strategy, and I'm certainly not saying it's the best, but it's just one that I've chosen. It's one that I enjoy. Now, do I like debating? There's a part of me that loves it. I mean, I was a college basketball player, so I like competing, but I think there's just such a need for charitable conversations today. And last thing I'll say, you know, it's interesting, Natasha, I had a, an atheist on my show, and he said to me, he goes, your show fascinates me because you don't feel the need to defend everything. That just shows me that you have this sense of confidence in your views that is really intriguing to me. And I thought, wow, what a fascinating insight. Yeah, it is. And I think that part of it is that when you when you watch these, to be clear for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen these interviews, Sean is not... Uh, affirming things that he doesn't believe in. So it's not that he brings people on to do a bait and switch and kind of says, you know, sets them up to think like, oh, you know, he kind of agrees with me. It's not like that at all. It's very clear. You're asking questions to understand where they're coming from for all the purposes that you just said. And so I think that I think it is very helpful to to hear that. And, you know, Sean, I don't know if you've had this pushback before, but especially when I talk with parents and do parenting talks, I will mm. tell parents that there are four things that your kids really need in terms of a knowledge base to grow up with a confident faith. One is what the Bible teaches. Two is why believe it. Three is what others believe. And four is answering challenges. That's the four point mm. framework that I use. And I get so much pushback on what others believe. Parents huh. will always say, Hey, I'm not going to talk about what others believe. I don't need to teach others about other kinds of worldviews. I just need to teach my kids the truth. And of course, we want to teach our kids the truth. Of course, we want to proclaim truth even outside of parenting. But if we don't fully understand what other people believe around us, then we cannot effectively have those conversations. And then we can be misled ourselves because we don't understand where they're coming from. And that's how a lot of people, I think, get brought into a progressive movement today because they don't really understand understand the differences. So there's enormous value, I guess is what I'm saying, in doing what you're doing to understand the other side very well so that you can better reach people and that you can better understand the challenges yourself. So yesterday I asked people on Facebook if they had any questions for you. And one person did ask about this specific interview in particular. Mm. And he wanted to know what more you learned about progressive Christianity from that conversation with Brandon. So I thought that was an interesting question. So maybe share how this example of modeling a conversation actually gave you some additional insight. I don't know that I learned a ton more from that conversation, partly because before the conversation, I read Brandon's books. I watched a few mm. of his videos. Before I bring somebody on, I really want to have a sense of who are they? What do they think? I don't want to be surprised. And so <laughs> going into it and having had a number of conversations with progressive Christians, I'm not sure there was a ton that I learned from it. 
But I tell you what I gained is I think I gained a friend. I really enjoyed that conversation with Brandon. He and I differ significantly. I mean, he argues that Jesus sinned. And I push back on that passage in Matthew, and I just think it's bad exegesis. And I pressed him on it in the interview. And at the end, I think his response was kind of like, well, other people see it like I do. You know, let's move on. And so there's no no question that we differed firmly. But I think he walked away from that and was like, wow, here's an evangelical willing to listen to me, willing to have a conversation. So maybe through the trajectory of his life, we can just stay in relationship. And I can hear some people saying, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to treat heretics a certain way? And partly I would say, I'm not running a church. I'm a professor. And amongst other things, I'm running a YouTube channel, which is a place for public conversation. It's not, it's a different element people miss. So I don't, I mean, if I'm being honest, I'm trying to think of something. I probably have to go back and watch it. It's not like I learned a ton of new things, but I gained, I gained a friend from it. And uh, I hope we have a lot more conversations. I, I hope you will, too. And it was really an interesting interview, as well as the Colby Martin interviews. Mm. I've actually used those as part of my homeschool assignments with my kids. And I thought it was very helpful for understanding the kind of progressive viewpoint on things. And so I will put links to those also in the show notes. Now, as someone with a public platform, you can go into a conversation like that one with a brand and knowing what the purpose is going to be, that you're just going to learn from it, build relationship. But how would you suggest that people listening to this know when it's time in their personal lives to simply ask questions and listen? And when is it time to proactively share truth? Well, there's a big difference between a YouTube channel and a personal conversation. And so just just keep that in mind. Probably most people are not running a YouTube channel and trying to navigate a conversation that anybody can watch. In the case of the ones you've mentioned, collectively hundreds of thousands of people watch this conversation. It's, it's crazy to think about. That's very different than in person. I guess one principle for me in a relationship like this is I really want to make sure I understand what somebody believes first. That's where I start. What does this person believe is question number one. So I've spent a lot of time, Natasha, answering questions I thought people were asking Hmm. that they weren't really asking because I didn't get to the heart of the issue. And so that's why I think it was, I've heard this secondhand, don't quote me on this, this could be wrong, but I think it was Francis Schaeffer, at least it's been attributed to him, that was something effective. If you had an hour to talk with somebody, he'd spend like all but five minutes listening. You know, something to that effect. If it's apocryphal and not true, feel free to connect me. But that, correct me, but that idea <laughs> is, is powerful. And believe it or not, my dad does that really well too. So I, I often, I, I talk when either one of two things happen. Either the person asks me questions or I feel like I really understand where you're coming from, and then I'll try to engage the person. And I'm, I'm always looking for a hook and a connection to kind of redirect the conversation and say, tell me what you think. How do you process this? But, I, I, you know, I guess make sure you understand first. That's step number one. And then just look for a conversation to engage after you've found the heart of the issue. And so often what people say, the heart of the issue is not the heart of the issue. I mean, there's a proverb that says the purpose in a man's heart is deep and a person of wisdom draws it out. 
So even with so many skeptics and progressive Christians, not all, but many will raise intellectual challenges and we need to be ready to answer them. But when you get down to it, many people, there's emotional hurt, there's relational hurt, there's disappointment with God, there's moral issues at play. Whatever the heart of that issue is, I want to understand it first. And then you better believe I'm looking for opportunities to flip it back in the person and say, tell me what you think. How would you answer this? And continue the conversation. That's that's such an important starting point. And I love your emphasis on that. Just understand where they're coming from. You can't speak with someone and you can't have that connection and actually get to a point of answering their questions, like you said, if you're answering the questions that you think that they have. So I, I love the, the starting point of just understanding and asking those questions. You know, it's often said along those lines that people want to know that you care about them before they're open to hearing truth. And to that end, I know that you often say, like you've said here in other places, that you want to hear people's stories and understand where they're coming from. I have to admit that sometimes I have struggled with this concept because it has the potential to be patronizing. So someone can feel like you're just kind of humoring them by hearing them out, knowing that you're probably thinking all along that what they're saying is wrong and that you disagree with them. You don't agree with their lifestyle. You don't agree with their beliefs. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that and how it could be perceived by other people that you're wanting to hear about their stories just because it's part of a quote unquote strategy. So the bottom line is I can't control how somebody's going to perceive me. You and I were chatting before this interview out how some people will read a blog, see a video, meet someone who's an apologist, in my case, maybe because I'm a McDowell, and assume all these things about me and import that upon me. I can't control that. So if someone's going to view it as patronizing because of some experience they have beforehand, that's outside of my control. But what I can make sure I'm doing is if I ask someone about their beliefs, I actually genuinely want to know. If I ask about their story, I genuinely want to understand their story. So if we approach it with that heart, then I don't think we have to really worry about being patronizing to others. Now, if they interpret it that way again, that's out of my control. Nothing I can do about that. But I can tell you, when I had a, a outspoken lesbian who described herself as the, what did she say? She said, I'm the OG lesbian YouTuber. I think that's the word she used. Described herself as spiritual, not a Christian. Like we differ on some serious issues. But I was just really curious. Who do you think Jesus was? How did you come out to your parents? How do you view Christians? And so even the whole time, when I first contacted her, I said, hey, full disclosure, I'm a Christian professor and an apologist. <laughs> I just laid it out there. So I think if we try to hide who we are and pretend that we're somebody else, then it can come across as patronizing. But if we let people know exactly what we believe and then we're kind with them, I think more than that, it just shows generosity. It shows a willingness to listen. It breaks the stereotype that Christians are more likely to preach and not try to understand and find common ground. So I guess of all the things I worry about, coming across as patronizing is not one of them, even though people have told me that. I could just tell you in my heart, I really don't think that I am. And I'm really genuinely curious about how other people see the world. If they flip it around and want to know what I believe, I am ready and eager to share with them. 
Yeah. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting that you've ever come mm. across as patronizing, just that sometimes I think people could sure. perceive it that way. Just things that I've seen, not in, in the context of your videos, but things that I've seen where people feel like, well, they only want to hear your story so that they can, you know, then tell you yeah. about how Jesus hates what you're doing and that kind of thing. So there's always a potential for that. But I think a good lesson to take from what you just said that's applicable to so much in today's culture is that we're not responsible for how people receive the truth. I mean, we have to do it graciously like we We've been talking about in this whole episode, but at the same time, you can be as gracious as humanly possible in how you deliver something, and people can still hate you for it and call you names and insult you, say you were patronizing, whatever the case is. So we're not responsible for that reception. Um, well, we've been talking mostly about grace and truth with non-believers or uh, maybe people who do identify as Christians but hold some different beliefs. But one of my Facebook followers brought up the question for you of how to engage with fellow believers. She said, for example, that her biggest challenge has been in engaging with people who claim to follow Jesus but have no problem having sex outside of marriage. So how would you say engaging with grace and truth might look different in some ways with fellow Christians who at least say that they do trust that the Bible is the word of God? Well, in some ways we have to use wisdom about where that Christian is at. So if this is an older, more mature Christian who says, yeah, I follow Jesus and I think premarital sex is fine or same-sex marriage is fine, shifting your gender to not match your biological sex is fine. Well, if this is somebody who's older and been in the church for a while and is teaching others, I'm going to have a lot less grace for that. doesn't mean I won't be kind with that person first try to build a relationship, try to understand what's going on and where they're coming from. But the Bible has a lot to say, like James 3, about teachers leading people astray. That's a verse that doesn't really keep me up at night, but if a verse were to keep me up at night, it would be that one. It's like, woe to you becoming a teacher. You'll be judged more strictly. I do think about that a lot. And so if somebody's standing up and proclaiming something that's unbiblical in the name of Jesus— yeah, there's a lot of times where we push back firmly and tell them they're out of line because that's what we see Paul and Jesus doing in the scriptures. That's different to me than somebody who's young in their faith, young in age, confused, trying to figure things out. Mm -hmm. That's where time and patience and grace comes in. As long as that person is on the right trajectory, I don't want to approach them and start dying on every single conceivable hill. I, mean, I think one of the most well-known apologists to Mormons, Sandra Tanner, uh, if I remember correctly, we heard her speak years ago at her ministry in Salt Lake City, and she said when she first became a Christian, she continued to believe in the Book of Mormon. If I remember correctly, it was months or maybe even a couple years. I thought, wow, that's incredible. Now, some of the more errant teachings come of the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, more so than the Book of Mormon. But when she became a Christian, it took her some time to work through that. So when we're speaking with Christians, I still want to lead with grace. I still want to give people the benefit of the doubt because I think about what's going to cause somebody to change their views. Rarely shaming somebody does it. I'm not amazed how many people try to shame me online for whatever reason, Christians or non-Christians. And I think, what's your goal here? Because it just doesn't work to cha change anybody. I still want to lead with grace and kindness, but I'm just going to have a different strategy with somebody who should know better and somebody who has 
publicly been critiquing other people versus somebody who's young and confused and just trying to piece things together. Yeah, that that's a very helpful distinction. I think a lot of times if people are engaging in line online, they don't necessarily know if this stranger, you know, where they are in their journey, right? There are many different levels of sanctification and different, like you're saying, places on people's journey. So if you don't know where someone is, give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that maybe they genuinely don't know. Don't assign, you know, an evil intent that this person is trying to mislead people. Don't assume that they're of the worst of someone. When you assume that maybe they just don't know. And you can carefully explain why you think maybe there's something here that is different than what the Bible teaches, then you have a chance of actually being heard rather than just kind of attacking someone. So I think if we always assume, especially in those online conversations, that maybe someone just doesn't know, then we're going to have a more charitable conversation. So speaking of social media, I think social media is interesting because it's a place where when you share a post, you can't discriminate in your approach between believers and non-believers. But something you said in one of your latest blog posts is, I think, a brilliant principle for engaging in any kind of public forum. The post is called How to Talk About Abortion in the Church, and here's what you said. A principle I try to keep in mind when speaking about abortion from the stage is this. Even though I don't know the story of people in the audience, I always assume that there is at least one with regret about abortion. That is so good. Can you explain a little bit more about that here? Why? What's your purpose in doing that? One of the things I've learned from just speaking for years is that you have no idea the experiences and the hurt and the pain of people in the church and outside of the church and in the audience. I don't get surprised anymore. I'm 46 years old, Natasha. There was, when I was in my 20s and 30s, things surprised me. Not much surprises <laughs> me anymore. I'm well aware of the brokenness of mankind, my own failure included, and so I'm just not. And so I've learned enough having people come up to me after talks and share some of the most heartbreaking stories I never would have imagined. I started to think every time I talk about a topic, I've got to err on the side of assuming that there's somebody in the audience who probably has some pain or regret or personal experience with this. And I speak truth, but am I doing it in a way that it lands well? and shows grace to this person. So especially on the topic of abortion, I think I've been about as clear being pro-life as anybody on this topic, whether it's speaking, YouTube channel, social media. But one of the things I go out of my way to say, I was speaking to church this past weekend and made an example of a church in a, a church in Texas. And I, I said, hey, look, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. Man or woman, you have any kind of experience in this, please know that God forgives you and loves you and can restore you. And then I move on. And, you know, if you're talking about gun control or immigration or now transgender, I mean, every single talk I give, multiple parents on that topic will come up yeah. and just say, my kids, my grandkids, my sister. I mean, it's a personal issue for people. So... As a professor, I can err on being in the world of ideas, and I still make that mistake. But that's just a principle. When I talk about a topic, however sensitive it is, I try to keep in mind and just assume there's probably somebody in the audience. You talk, if I'm going to talk about gun control, 
there's a decent chance that there's people on one side who are upset and feel like their rights to guns are being taken. But there's also a decent chance there's someone in the audience who has been hurt by somebody with a weapon and maybe killed. I've had people tell me that. And so that's just a principle that I try to follow to inform the way I speak on these thorny issues, that it's not just an idea. There's human beings out there wrestling with this. Imagine how different a lot of online interactions would look if everyone kept that in mind, right? I think that that's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's such a good point. And that's why I wanted you to share about that because I think that, you know, if you just talk about the social media world, and I keep coming back to that because most people listening don't have a platform like you. They don't go out and speak, so they don't have those kinds of things. But every time you speak out on social media, you have your own platform amongst the people who are your friends and your family, your colleagues, all the people who are going to hear what you have to say. And there are a lot of people who see posts who you will never hear from. And every time you come down with some kind of, it might be a, well, an absolutely true nugget of truth, a wonderful thing that you're saying, but if it's not said in a way that acknowledges someone might be struggling with this, then you can really, really turn people away from wanting to hear anything that you have to say. And I, I have friends who always post things uh, mm. mocking um, people who are transgender, for example. You know, Gosh. I really hated recently there was a Finnish uh, a Finnish as in from Finland a transgender figure skater did you see this Sean it was I the, did see this the yeah. first transgender woman uh, who was skating in some kind of professional event there and and this person fell on the ice and I saw so many Christians reposting this video and just mocking the fact that this person fell and some people, you know, they weren't necessarily coming right out to say, you know, oh, look at this person. It was more like, well, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. But all of that, I think, just makes Christians look bad. Mm. We can speak to the truth of how God created men and women and the design behind that and his purposes. We can speak to all of that without reposting videos of a transgender person falling, without joking about, hey, I'm identifying as a cat today. What about you? All of these kinds of jokes just give people this impression that we don't take these things seriously. And I think that mockery is is one of the worst things that we can do. I agree 100% on two levels. Number one, it's not Christian. And number two, it's just not effective. <laughs> Nobody's going to see that and be like, hey, you're right. Maybe I should rethink my views of body and sex and gender because you mocked me, right? On both right. levels. It's not wise. It's not effective. And it's not loving. So we need to be loving and we need to be effective. I'll give an example of this. Just one way I've started using social media more is I post articles, I post resources, but I just ask a lot of questions. One reason is Jesus asked a lot of questions when he knew the answer. Questions do not create barriers with people and get defensive. It makes people think. Hmm. So I'm trying to make Christians think and sometimes trying to just make skeptics think. And I'm also really curious how people are going to respond. So I've had two posts in this past week that created really interesting conversation. One was, I said, if you're a former Christian, is there anything you miss from being a Christian? Is there anything you look back on fondly and wish were still part of your life? I'm really cu curious how former Christians would respond. 
But I also mm-hmm. want to communicate to them that I care and somebody's listening and that they matter. And a lot of people said things like community, uh, friendships, the idea of having a transcendent purpose, a way to deal with death, uh, these kinds of things. But some people launched into saying, former Christian, there is no such thing as a former Christian, and started hijacking the conversation, throwing verses in there. And then a number of people said, thank you for this comment because you've affirmed all the reasons why I left this community in the first place. You Christians are so tone deaf. And I thought, that's right. That's a great theological question. But somebody reads this tweet and doesn't realize I'm asking people to be vulnerable. I'm asking them to publicly share hurts in their life. And some people come in and say, you're not a Christian. Well, you know, are all the people who posted their former Christians? Probably not. There's even one person who said, I'm not even sure if I ever was a Christian. But that is not the place to do it. And it's tone deaf. Another one I did, Natasha, that was so interesting is I said, I'm going to, I want to, it's not that long. I'm going to read exactly to you so I don't miss it. Here it is. I said, if you are an atheist or agnostic, is there anything about the world that gives you pause and makes you wonder if there is a God? If so, what is it? Great I'm question. curious. Yeah. Some said fine tuning. Some said beauty. Quite a few just flat out said nothing, which surprised me. Nothing. And a bunch of Christians got in there and start arguing with them. And I thought, are you tone deaf? Just read and listen and understand. You don't have to correct and win every argument. What if Christians entered into this and said, wow, you find beauty interesting. Tell me about that. What do you do when you look at a mountain? Like, what if we just engaged in conversation, but we can't help ourselves? We insult, we change the topic, and it's just an adventure and missing the point. So those things make me want to get off social media, but then I pause and I think, you know what? There's still some people who listen. There's still some people you can encourage. There's still some ways you can do good. And frankly, a lot of what we're talking about today, Natasha, I hesitate to say this because I feel like I, I fall short of this all the time, but I'm just trying to mentor and model Christians how to have real conversations how to post more generously on social media. I really am just trying to mentor people. And by the way, it doesn't mean this stuff just rolls off my back. I think what we miss on social media, these are real human beings. They're not with us in flesh and blood, but these are real human beings. Even those who are behind fake names that don't even identify themselves. And it does bother me that I put my name out there and engage under it. And some people don't like there is something that bothers me about that, but I understand why some people don't. Nonetheless, it's still a human being and it's still a person. And if we just stop and think this isn't just a tweet, how is this going to land? Am I being kind? And being kind doesn't mean you're not truthful. It doesn't mean you don't push back. If we just ask those kinds of questions as Christians, I think we take so much of the air out of the balloon of people who, whether they're progressive or atheist, railing at the church, and sometimes they make very legitimate points, we could take a lot of the air out of that if we just calm down and genuinely focus on how do we love people. 
Amen. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more with that. And this, those examples are so great, too, of just I, I see that very often on social media that people who want to comment will just miss the point entirely of what that particular conversation is about. That's why I was I let out a giant sigh when you made the comment about the person <laughs> who said former Christian. I, I mean, how many times have I seen that comment? And it's like, you know, it, the crowd that you're trying to talk to with that post is completely different than you know the the theological discussion that might come along with that particular question someone's raising about you know why are you using the term former christian but just missing the point of what you're trying to do i think that you know for anyone listening as you engage on social media this is such a helpful tip what is the point of the poster whether it's a believer a non-believer what is it that they're actually trying to talk about try to stay on that wavelength because that's where the interest is that's where they are and try to engage right at that position not hmm. to bring up your favorite dig at hey why are you using the term former christian i i really oh, I, <laughs> can we just have a moment of silence on that one <laughs> seriously well with all of this talk of grace and truth cancel culture is still something that looms over everything and i wouldn't want anyone listening to this to think you know if i can just strike that perfect balance between grace and truth like sean i will be able to have good conversations with any of my loved ones and friends and colleagues you and i both know that there are many people today who will just cut you out of their lives because of what you believe. Your beliefs are toxic, oppressive, and harmful. So many people have shared heartbreaking stories of being cut off by their loved ones when they believed they were sharing with grace and truth. So what would you say to Christians who have been canceled by people they love, even though they did their absolute best to do all the things that we're talking about? The one big thing that cancel culture lacks is forgiveness. And that's the heart of the Christian faith, that there's nothing you've said or done that God won't forgive you for if you're willing to ask. So if you have been canceled, know that God has grace for you. Don't beat yourself up. The first thing is to experience God's forgiveness and know that firsthand. Now, does that mean you can? there's some formula to have successful relationships with people? Uh, no. If you think that's the case for me, just read the comments on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, on YouTube, whatever medium it is. I have plenty of haters out there, and it doesn't matter how kind or gracious I am to them. I can't change that. There's some people that are going to hate you and hate me no matter what we say and no matter what we do. Now, it bothers me and I want to fix it. And I think oftentimes when I see that, I thought, you know, if we could just talk, I'm pretty sure we could be friends. But yeah. th there's no formula to fix it. I mean, the greatest lover of all time, Jesus, God in human flesh, they crucified him. They crucified him. I mean, Paul was called a babbler. He was called a fool and an imposter. So the message of Christ is unpopular and it's going to cost us something. That's why I'm not in this for views. I'm not in this for popularity. I'm not in this for all those things. That's not what matters to me. I'll tell you, Natasha, I had a chance to interview Os Guinness. And I asked him one time, he's one of my favorite thinkers. I said, 
what do you think your legacy is going to be? And his response to me, he goes, Sean, the idea of legacy is a secular idea. All that matters is God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Mm. And I thought, dang, I will never forget <laughs> that. So whether it's a book, whether it's a YouTube channel, whether it's a conversation with your kids, the question is, have I just been faithful to try to be charitable and loving towards this person? Does that mean there's no pain? No, but I can put my head down at night and sleep when I know I've tried to be as charitable and gracious as I can be. Now, with that said, there probably are a lot of people who say, well, I've been loving and kind and they hate on me. And, you know, in some cases I'd say, well, let, let's still do a little introspection here first. Sure. We're quick to blame others. Maybe there are ways we can be more loving. But I guess especially if we're talking about a parent here, I would say, number one, like I said earlier, give yourself some grace. Number two, don't give up. Pray for this person. Take a long-term perspective and just take baby steps to try to reach out and engage this person well. You and I have a friend who's an apologist, and he said this publicly, but his daughter came out with just very different views than he has. And he said, the shift for me was when I realized I didn't have to prove an argument or a position. I just had to prove my love. So yeah, if you've been canceled, it might sound insensitive, but in some sense, welcome to the club in the sense of Jesus was on one level, Paul was on one level, and I meet parents and I get emails daily who have experienced that kind of pain. And my heart mm -hmm. goes out to them. I pray for them, tell them not to beat themselves up, experience God's grace, uh, and just keep on loving this person. But no, what did Jesus say? It's the truth that will set you free. There are lies in our culture, and I get it as a parent that feels like if I just affirm this, then I can be back in relationship. And I just say, don't, don't do that. In the long term, it's the truth that's going to set somebody free. Yeah, and speaking of of parenting, I think that those are the most heartbreaking stories that I hear. Oh, you know, at our gosh. Unshaken conference in the the first one that we just did in January, I heard um, multiple stories from people who were there of how they had been cut off by their kids because of their biblical views on sexuality mm. and the transgender movement. And uh, and I know talking to Elisa afterwards, she had heard multiple stories from people over at her book table also. This is this has become so pervasive, and more often than not, I hear stories where there's nothing really to ask for forgiveness for because mm. it, people were cut off just because of what they believed. So I completely agree with you. Always evaluate yourself. You know, did I get cut off for something that I did in a way that I shouldn't have done it? Was I ungodly in some way? There's absolutely that, but more often than not, today I hear the stories of, hey, I've been cut off just because of what I believe. There's mm. nothing I need forgiveness for per se on this because I'm just a Christian. I'm holding to biblical truth. And I think that's the hardest thing for so many people. And that's hard because you almost wish that you had done something that you could say, hey, please forgive me for what I did. But to your point, if you're holding to biblical truth, that's what we're called to do, whether people cut you off or not. It's it's extremely difficult. And hearing the parent stories 
it's truly heartbreaking. Do you think for those who still have kids at home, I'm curious, do you think there's anything that parents can do in particular as they're thinking about the culture that our kids are growing up and knowing how these beliefs can be perceived and what the world is saying? Is there anything in particular you would suggest parents talk with their kids about that might mean that in the future they don't get cut off as easily? Is Any conversations in particular, is there anything you can do as a parent that might prevent that from happening? If there were a formula to pass on your faith, and I say if because we're dealing with human beings, not like bricks that you just move and put into place, the data would show three things. Number one, you've got to model a life that has integrity and that is compelling to your kids. If you don't live out your faith, in some sense, it doesn't matter what you say. So number one, you have to model it. Number two, just build a relationship with your kids. Get to know them. Spend time with that. A deep emotional connection. And then number three, look for opportunities to talk with your kids about all sorts of issues tied to faith. If you do those three things consistently, you put yourself, statistically speaking, in the best possible position to pass on your faith. And I think about my own life. You know, my father traveled more than I did. I'm probably gone a quarter of the time as a whole, maybe a third sometimes. My dad was gone half of the time, and I missed him sometimes. And it's not that he sinned by being gone. That's not what I mean. But the passage that says love covers a multitude of sins, the time my dad was gone, the time I missed him and wished he were there at a ball game, I never questioned that he loved God. Never questioned that he loved my mom. Never questioned that he loved me. That deep sense of love, I think, covers all. So that's the most important thing with our kids. And I think even when our kids go through hard times, I mean, I've had some difficult conversations. My son is 18, and when he was a senior, we had a couple pretty painful conversations where he said stuff. Looking back now, he's like, Dad, I can't believe I said that. I'm so sorry. But I didn't know he was going to come full circle. I didn't know he was going to own it. There was no guarantee. But I think the fact that my wife and I sacrificed for him, we built a relationship with him, he always knew that we loved him, has brought him back. So build that loving relationship. And just like it says in Deuteronomy 6.4, you know, love Lord God, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and talk about these things when you walk, when you lie down, when you get up, through the rhythm of life. Talk about these issues with your kids. You're in the best position to see them embrace the faith that you so deeply care about. Yeah, beautifully said. And I want to end just by talking a little bit about a resource that you have to help with this. Mm. It's your most recent book called A Rebel's Manifesto, Choosing Truth, Real Justice, and Love Amid the Noise of Today's World. Is it still your most recent book? You are so prolific as an author. I, I wrote this and then I thought, oh, wait, does he have a newer book? Is it your most recent book? <laughs> It is. I've got a couple in the yes, pipeline, okay. but you got that one right. <laughs> okay, I'm fact-checking myself in real time here. It has 26 short chapters on all kinds of things. It has information on social media, loneliness, suicide, racial tension, sexuality, pornography, guns, immigration. I mean, you cover 
the gamut here. And I can't say enough about what a great resource it is for helping teens learn how to think biblically about all these cultural mm. issues. My son actually read it last year when he was 13, and he loved it. So in case anyone's mm. wondering about the age here, I mean, a 13-year-old could definitely read this, and then, of course, older. And I'll have a link to that in the notes for parents who want to learn more. But can you just leave us with some words of advice for how parents can raise kids who want to engage with grace and truth themselves. So we talked a little bit about, you know, what do you do to try to raise kids who will be faithful to the Lord? But when kids are faithful and they do want to engage with others in their school environments and such, what are some ways that they can do that? How can we show them to engage in grace and truth in their own environments? Here's a practical way to try to think about this. I'm always looking for opportunities that arise in the normal progression of life to engage my kids in worldview conversations. So my son is 18 now. When he was 14, he wanted to see that movie Bohemian Rhapsody about the rock band Queen. It was PG-13, had some ideas that I didn't love, but I looked into it, I was like, you know what, he's 14, he wants to see it. So I went to him and I said, hey buddy, I'll take you to front of this movie and I'll pay $100 for popcorn and actual <laughs> tickets at this stage if when we're done, just we'll just sit down and talk about it. I just want to know what you think, what you saw in it, what you think we can agree with as Christians and maybe some areas of pause. He goes, sure, dad. So we brought one of his friends, go to movie when we're done. We come walking in. He sits down at the dining room table. He says, okay, dad, let's talk. Like he took the initiative and we probably talked 30 minutes. If I remember that was an opportunity that was there, but I taught him how to think Christianly about movies to me. Um, Jay Warner Wallace, who I know you know well, we wrote a book a while ago for parents. And when we were writing this for parents, I thought if we give some new program for parents, they're going to do it for two weeks and then stop and feel guilty. <laughs> but what if we could help people more strategically use the opportunities that are already there? So like this book, A Rebel's Manifesto, it's an update of the first book I wrote, I think 2006, called Ethics, E-T-H-I-X, which is like pre-social media, which is amazing how much has changed. And that book had 10 chapters. Why? Because in my mind, every book has 10 chapters. That was literally the level of thoughtfulness that I had, Natasha. And then I went to update <laughs> this book and I thought, wait a minute, I'm a parent. What kind of book would I like no. to use with my own kids? What would I like to use in a youth group? What would I use in a Christian school classroom? And I thought shorter chapters, 1,500 words, like four to five pages you can read in like 10 minutes with discussion guides, that's the kind of book I would use. So my daughter read it, gave me feedback. I'm taking a high school class through it chapter by chapter, and we're just discussing it. That's what that book is for. And so I've given a lot of parents, like, give your kids the month challenge. Just read one a day. I think there's 30 chapters with the intro, 30 or 31. And then at the end, give your kids some reward if that's the kind of thing that rewards them. So bottom line, all the evidence shows that the biggest influence on our kids is not Netflix. It's not Disney Plus. It's not some politician. It's not some influencer. It's not the educational system. It's mom and dad, period. It's us. We have the power if we will utilize it in relationships and in a way that intentionally engages them. That's what works. 
Well, that is a perfect ending to this episode. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this wisdom with everyone listening. You have been, you've definitely been an inspiration to me. I mean, seeing Mm. your YouTube channel and the vast amount of content that you put out is just fascinating. The way that you engage with people in the interviews that you do is, is truly something that I think models well for so many Christians, how we can better engage. And I really highly recommend to anyone listening to go and subscribe to Sean YouTube channel because I find so much content there for my kids to discuss, by the way. So for those who are parents listening, I have probably assigned more videos from Sean's channel in my homeschool, (laughs) true, um, than any other channel. In fact, just last week, they had to uh, watch your interview with the exorcist or uh, the the psychiatrist who was talking about exorcism. Uh, And so I thought that was a fascinating thing to talk about and to to talk about, well, how does this uh, go along with Christianity? How does it not? What does it say about naturalism? And what does it not? We, we had a great conversation. So really appreciate everything that you do. Thanks for being on. Natasha, my pleasure. Sure appreciate what you do and your voice. Honor to come on. Keep it up. Thanks for listening today. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do me a favor, help get the word out, share it with some friends, and take a minute to rate and review on the platform where you're listening. It helps more people find out about the show. And don't forget that I also have a weekly podcast now with Elisa Childers called Unshaken Faith. You can find that wherever you're listening to podcasts. And we just talk about all the current stuff that's going on in terms of theology and culture and apologetics, and we do it in 15 to 20 minutes each week, so you're not going to want to miss that. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk with you soon. Bye-bye.